Did I take enough data into consideration? And if you think it through, you find you never could take enough data into consideration. The data for a decision in any given situation is infinite. Welcome to another episode of the Decision Architecture Podcast. My name is Chris. This podcast is a is a podcast about technology, society, primarily around the, uh, the subjects of artificial intelligence and how it affects our world, and also a little bit of like sociology as well. I know every week we kind of try to bring these things together. Um, tonight, I wanted to go ahead and talk about the. Um, one of the, the, the most newest books by uh, the author Jeff Dawkins. The name of the book is called "A Thousand Brains," and the book is um, goes over the idea of what, how does the brain work? You know, uh, there's been a lot of studies going on for several years. You know, and within the last 13 years, there have been a lot of improvement on like how the brain actually works. And even though our machine learning um, technology isn't anywhere close to how the human brain works, um, we're learning a little bit more about ourselves as humanity. And I wanted to go ahead and talk about this book because I found out about this book uh, through one of my uh, college courses. Um, one of the professors was bringing it up. And I really do like uh, when um, studies like this talks about you know, things that are complex, such as like understanding like how the brain works and try to break it down to layman speak. So you can share it amongst everybody who, you know, are not, you don't have to be a neuroscientist in order to understand it. And I think that, um, I think that we are moving in that path in this particular uh, 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 life that we're in right now, where we can utilize the internet to, um, you quickly, uh, you know, pick up different topics and understand them and try things out. And and one of the things that the book was talking about that I wanted to talk about was that uh, how much that the human intelligence is modeled behind the machine learning intelligence. And some of the more um, granular parts of the understanding of the brain and how certain things we didn't think were, you know, the same, for example, like how all the you know the senses the senses of like touch and and taste and speech you know kind of all, all underneath the same um, platform um, not platforms but all underneath the same I guess constructs of of what it, it actually means to be um, to be like to be a human being and to be able to um to learn things and like how they're all put together are all underneath the same thing and um. One thing that also goes about is that it also plays a lot into understanding the uh, ideologies or the theories of um, other theories, like the theories of, of life. And, you know, for example, Darwin's, you know, tree, um, tree of life, like how like every single animal is like pretty much a, um, a variant of, uh, of the same uh, type of, you know, uh, mammal or life on, on, on the planet. And um, it's, it's for me, uh, if you are following a lot of my podcasts, you know, from this, you know, Decisions Theory to my Managed State podcast and all the books I've been talking about, um, they all play on top of each other. So if you're interested in like learning a little bit more about these things, you can, you know, find a way to, you know, either follow some of those, pod, those podcasts in the past or you can even tweet on Twitter. 
um, Decisions Theory um, or Managed State Podcast is also worth or Yamanati Tech Society. I've been talking a lot about how these things are um, all playing together. And, you know, it's it's actually pretty interesting if you actually look into to learn more, more about it. But I'm going to take a break. And then when I come back, we will talk a little bit more about the book. Stay tuned. Hi, it's me, Edisha again. <laughs> and you're listening to Decision Architecture Podcast, a technology podcast about how decisions define us and how they don't. We are approaching a future where we will be able to see how each of our decisions opens a new door and closes another. Decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> when choosing what podcast to tune into, choose Decision Architecture Podcast. AI is at the forefront of a new era of computing, cognitive computing. It's a radically new kind of computing, very different from the programmable systems that preceded it, as different as those systems were from the tabulating machines of a century ago. Conventional computing solutions, based on the mathematical principles that emanate from the 1940s, are programmed based on rules and logic intended to derive mathematically precise answers, often following a rigid decision tree approach. But with today's wealth of big data and the need for more complex evidence-based decisions, such a rigid approach often breaks or fails to keep up with available information. Cognitive computing enables people to create a profoundly new kind of value, finding answers and insights locked away in volumes of data. Richard Dawkins. Be sure to look for your bonus PDF of figures from the audio and suggested reading. This is Richard Dawkins. I was honored to be invited to write the foreword to Jeff Hawkins' book, A Thousand Brains. Don't read this book at bedtime. Not that it's frightening, it won't give you nightmares, but it's so exhilarating, so stimulating, it'll turn your mind into a whirling maelstrom of excitingly provocative ideas. You'll want to rush out and tell someone, rather than go to sleep. It is a victim of this maelstrom who writes the foreword, and I expect it'll show. Charles Darwin was unusual among scientists in having the means to work outside universities and without government research grants. Jeff Hawkins might not relish being called the Silicon Valley equivalent of a gentleman scientist, but, well, you get the parallel. Darwin's powerful idea was too revolutionary to catch on when expressed in a brief article and the Darwin-Wallace joint papers of 1858 were all but ignored. As Darwin himself said, the idea needed to be expressed at book length, and sure enough, it was his great book that shook Victorian foundations a year later. Book length treatment too is needed for Jeff Hawkins' Thousand Brains theory, and for his notion of frames of reference. The very act of thinking is a form of movement. Bullseye! These two ideas are each profound enough to fill a book, but that's not all Jeff Hawkins gives us. T.H. Huxley famously said on Closing on the Origin of Species, how extremely stupid of me not to have thought of that. I'm not suggesting that brain scientists will necessarily say the same when they close this book. It is a book of many exciting ideas rather than one huge idea like Darwin's. Still, I suspect that not just T.H. Huxley, but his three brilliant grandsons would have loved it. Andrew, because he discovered how the nerve impulse works. Hodgkin and Huxley are the Watson and Crick of the nervous system. Aldous because of his visionary and poetic voyages to the mind's furthest reaches, and Julian because he wrote this poem, extolling the brain's capacity to construct a model of reality, a microcosm of the universe. The world of things entered your infant mind to populate that crystal cabinet. Within its walls the strangest partners met, and things turned thoughts did propagate their kind. For once within, corporeal fact could find a spirit, fact anew in mutual debt, built there your little microcosm, which yet had hugest tasks to its small self assigned. 
Dead men can live there and converse with stars. Equator speaks with pole and night with day. Spirit dissolves the world's material bars. A million isolations burn away. The universe can live and work and plan. At last made God within the mind of man. The brain sits in darkness, apprehending the outside world only through a hailstorm of Andrew Huxley's nerve impulses. A nerve impulse from the eye is no different from one from the ear or the big toe. It's where they end up in the brain that sorts them out. Jeff Hawkins is not the first scientist or philosopher to suggest that the reality we perceive is a constructed reality, a model updated and informed by bulletins streaming in from the senses. But Hawkins is, I think, the first to articulate, eloquently and at length, the idea that there is not one such model. There are thousands, one in each of the many neatly stacked columns that constitute the brain's cortex. There are about 150,000 of these columns, and they are the stars of the first section of the book, along with what he calls frames of reference. Hawkins's thesis about both of these is provocative, and it'll be interesting to see how it is received by other brain scientists. Well, I suspect. Not the least fascinating of his ideas here is that the cortical columns in their world-modelling activities work semi-autonomously. What we perceive is a kind of democratic consensus from among them. Democracy in the brain, consensus and even dispute, what an amazing idea. It is a major theme of the book. We human mammals are the victims of a recurrent dispute, a tussle between the old reptilian brain, which... And we're back. And I just played a small clip from the forward from Richard Dawkins. Uh, if you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, I mean, he's, he's, he's really renowned. He's really renowned. He's really known for um, a lot of the uh, evolutionary um, biology uh, papers that he's written for a while, and he's an author, and he's also was a professor at the uh, the New College in Oxford. Um, he was a professor for public understanding of science, you know, in nineteen ninety five to two thousand eight, and he's um, he's an atheist, and he is well known for the criticism for creationism and intelligent design. Um, he was actually. Um, He's actually—I don't think he's actually related um, to um, Jeff Dawkins, but uh, having his, you know, almost like his, like his blessing that this book is actually like the real deal and it's a great way to understand it. Was great to hear about from you know from my standpoint. You know, I don't really have any much expertise in this particular field whatsoever, but what it is is that. Um, when it's when it's time to start learning certain things, I try to step through certain things that are like um, that have been tested and have been um, validated to a point where you can try to you know read and understand and build your own questions and, and uh, test your own theories. So um, with this, with that being said, uh, the book. Um, it's if you have the audio book, it's about an eight hour um, listen. Um, the book is not that long. I think the, the number of pages, the book, thousand brains, number of pages. I'm gonna check that real quick. Um, it's not that many pages, it's 288 pages. So it's not, it would, it would be really quick to read if you, um, you know. If you're if that's your thing, but one of the things about the book is that it's broken up into three parts. And the first part of the book, it's written, it's broken up into just understanding the theory itself, 
and then it brings in the second part is um, machine learning and how it works with um, the brain works with machine learning, artificial intelligence, and then it talks about human intelligence. Um, so the the understanding of the brain and the future of AI um, really stems on how the human mi mind works. I mean, I think a lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about how AI is going to take over the world and how I, I kind of talked about like from the book, how AI won't really do too much because it's based off of how humans actually interact with it. So that's why I kind of like this particular book because this book actually talks about how important the human mind is and what it actually does, how it actually learns things and how it actually evolve over time to become such a useful tool and something that we really should be paying more attention to. Um, so with that being said, I want to just go ahead and just, just touch a few topics with it. I, this is a, this episode, well, will be, this is like a preliminary. I only spent, I only think I read the first um, few chapters of the first part of the book. So I'm not really talking from reading every single chapter. I will go ahead and come back to that um, in a week or two when I actually have had time to read it. Maybe, maybe next week I'll be able to make another part, but this will probably will be part one of a two-part series, at least two-part series of this entire book. I don't want to, because I won't spend that much time talking about it. So, so what it talks about is like what intelligence is and what it is not. Um, it goes over in detail about how you know difficult it is to understand what the brain is basically um, being able to to fulfill. He, um, Jeff uh, Jeff Dawkins, the author, actually goes ahead and talks about how the difficulty of trying to get in to the field of neuroscience when he started out as an electrical engineer in his early um, um, in his early years as a um, as a as a, in his early career uh, back when he started to get his masters and stuff like that. Um, one thing about the uh, his his details that one of the, the schools he actually applied to to try to get into their particular field, they actually called him back. I think like thirteen years later, fourteen years later to actually help them build up a school for the foundation of that. He actually also helped, he also worked with, you know, working with Palm Pilots and getting, you know, their typical technology and machine learning in, in them as well. And I won't know, I don't know, I won't go too deep into that, but he talked about the difficulties and how he was able to become a, um, you know, more of, of the, what he was always looking to work with, which was sort of the study of the brain after spending so many years working in other fields. So today, you know, it doesn't seem that the, uh, the book, uh, the book doesn't necessarily have to be, you don't have to really pay attention to the book if you're not like an into neuroscience, but if you do have a neuroscience background, you'll have, you'll understand a lot of that. If you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you, you'll hear a lot of different things too. For example, the term of precepts, you know, and how that is, um, that's how the, an intelligent agent, um, absorbs information, you know, or perceives information, how, so um, if you are uh, at the store and you're looking at different types of, um, let's say you're, you're at the jewelry store and you're looking at different pieces of jewelry, um, if you wanted to know what store you were in, you would have to kind of look around. And if you would see, you know, if you would, if you have seen a jewelry store before anywhere in the world, 
you'll be able to decide on whether or not I might be in a jewelry store because you see so many jewelry around. Or if you were, uh, if you were actually, uh, you'll be able to decide on whether or not you were in, um, whether the difference between being in a school or in a, in a, uh, in a supermarket based off of things you've seen before, what it actually means to be in, a, in that, those particular circumstances. So your environment is built around this um, model that we bring up, that we, are, we make up as we move on. And as we continue to improve upon that model, the brains, the neurons in our brains are strengthened because those connections are constantly being strengthened by those particular um, connections that we see things and we do things with it. We, we see something, we do something with it. Another example that he uh, that was brought up in the book that I wanted to bring up was the idea of listening to music, and that music is one of the, one of the um, the very few ways that you can actually can learn about music or understand music without having to actually do anything, because you can just not like you don't have to like uh, play music. You could just listen to it, and then listening to the music, you can after so many times, you can start predicting what's going to come up next. You know, because the tones that are played, you know, in different patterns are are able to be um, predicted because of how you've heard it so long. I mean, one of the things that when I was reading it, I think about, um, you know, commercials, jing, jingle songs, you know, um, like um, there used to be this jingle on Long Island. Uh, I used to listen to Celino and Barnes, like Celino and Barnes, injury attorney, gone one 800 and Go one 2020 Now, I listened to that over and over and over again when I was at work or I was watching TV at home and not never actually using the law firm at all. But that tone was was actually like 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 um it was actually um like burned into my memory. So I can play it back right now because of hearing it so many times. Does that mean I learned anything? What does that mean? Well, that's that's what the book's about. Like how we can think about something in a way that allows us to become um, allows us to become more um, like we can perceive our we could become we could become more aware of our environment. You know so. Um, you know, going to, you know, flying around in, in an airport, if you go from one airport from one part of the world to another part of the world, you know, they might change a little bit, but you will always have like certain things set up. You know, you always have like a security system, you know, area where you have to go through a security system in order to get through. You'll have um, the airplane, the airplanes are usually in one area. You know, you might have the, the, the mall or the stores in another area. You might have, you know, the bathrooms are usually set up certain certain places well, but they're not, you'll, you'll never really have, you know, you won't be able to like get on a plane without going through security, you know? So like, so things, so as a, so as a, as a, as using your, as an intelligent agent, you can always, you know, expect that when you're about to get on the plane, that you're going to have to spend up time because you might be stuck on a line because of the security, you know, stuff like that. It's like the things that we have to like, those, those small pieces play a big part, big role in understanding like how we learn. And then it also talks about in the beginning of the book, um, it talks about the, the other, uh, the other thing they were talking about the book was that, um, 
Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I'll, I'll take a break right now. And what I want to talk about next, the next piece I'll talk about is like the evolution of the brain and how that is so, you know, how, why that's so important. So we'll stay tuned. Welcome back. This is the Decision Architecture Podcast, a podcast about how decisions define us and how they don't. <laughs> but first, what is alpha beta pruning according to academia? Time is a precious <laughs> gift. Yeah, what she said. Time is a precious gift because you only have a set amount of it. You can make more money, but you can't make more time. When you give someone your time, you are giving them a portion of your life that you'll never get back. Your time is your life. To avoid wasting too much time, we should eliminate large amounts of choices from our decision tree. Very similar to how artificial intelligence agents do, with a technique called alpha-beta pruning. When alpha-beta pruning is applied to a min-max tree, it improves getting to the desired outcome without wasting time going down unnecessary paths. Consider the Super Nintendo game, Super Mario World. If an intelligent agent is given the task to complete a level within the game, the intelligent agent who never played the game before would have to try different strategies or approaches down a decision tree before coming up with a path that would lead to the goal. Decision After decision Decision <laughs> Poor Mario! Luckily, with alpha-beta pruning, our little intelligent agent would be able to save time doing something reckless, like going left instead of right. Our intelligent agent can prune away the idea that going left is a good idea or walking into an object like that monster over there. So, to summarize, when trying to reduce the computation time by a huge factor by cutting off branches in the decision tree because there is a better branch available, this is called alpha-beta pruning. Alright, so... Second, this is a, I guess this would be the third part of the podcast. I mean, yeah, you have the first, you have the introduction where I kind of talk about what you're going to listen to. And then you have like, you know, the little promotions in the beginning. And then you have the second part. So this will be the third part. And what I want to go ahead and talk about it was the the idea of the, of understanding how the brain, you know, evolved from, you know, over time. Uh, one of these why I talk about this because I was I did a, a course on Coursera about um, data science, and one of the great things that they were talking about was and I want and I really need to find the um, I was actually I am prepared for these these things, but now I just remembered something and I want to bring up, and uh, one of them was the idea of Charles Darwin. And yes, I have it up, yeah. And it talked about the scientific method and how you took analyzation of of data is usually in two different forms. You would have the empirical data, you know, and the empirical data would be Charles Darwin, you know. He was, you know, one of the early biologists, you know, but he went, he moved by faith. And he used to cite his, he used evidence of being able to see like how barnacles, you know, on one island was different than the barnacles in another. Or, you know, the um, a certain, certain birds would be more um, fit for a certain area that they were living in relative to others. 
And then um, when they broke those things, they did broke those animals down as he traveled along around the world, he started to become what a theory. And that theory was that um, these observations brought into the idea that um, that um, that uh, wait, 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 he was able to induce or induction. That's what basically it's basically being able to understand that every all living things are comes from like one particular area or one particular, um, I guess. Like one particular type, like all animals are built on top of each other. You know, like for example, if you cut open a pig, I did one for um, last semester for biology where we cut open, open a pig and it's hand. Um, the hands and the and organs are all laid down, all laid out the same way as a human is. Um, and the brain is also, you know, pretty similar in many all the species. It's always in the same spot. Um, so and so like there's like a, there's like a um, a root you know uh, a root idea or a root um, um, algorithm that's a great word for it a root algorithm on how life is actually brought together you know and and then it it varies based on type on top of different is based off a type of different areas that that the uh, the animal has lived at this doesn't mean that the animal automatically lives there, but it also spans into other things. Like, for example, you know, uh, natural selection is another thing he talked about. Like, so like all the animals are brought there, but based on their natural selection, um, certain animals will be more fit for that area and the other animals will just die off. So, and then now you would move on to Albert Einstein, you know, from 1859 to 18, 1971, 1905. You know, any part of that, he, Einstein was able to discuss the ideas from a theoretical he was able to deduce these things, meaning that he would come from the other way. He had a theory, and he utilized these theories using um, um, not not just empirical data, but he actually was able to use um, analytical data. He was able to kind of use like actual mathematical proofs to kind of understand like how the world was um, was brought together. Like for example, the theory of relativity. And how those things come together, and how everything's connected in, in the same way, but he was able to do it from a, from a larger standpoint, from not just the mammals on on the, on the planet. So I'm not I'm trying to bring you bring these things together because that's something I actually thought about when I was took this computational science and Coursera. But then on in the book, um, Jeff Doric Dawkins talks about the idea of how the brain was built in the same exact way. So our brain, the, 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 you know, the human brain with the prefrontal cortex is like the, the, the larger part of the, of the brain, the, 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 the frontal part of it is where um, our brain like kind of like stands out amongst all living things. And we can do things like think outside of our, ourselves. You know, we're not, we don't have to think outside of our body, you know. A dog doesn't necessarily pay attention to what it's going to eat next week. You know, it only pays attention to what it has to do at this moment. And, um, but the fabric that makes up the dog's brain and the human brain is all very, it's, it's all similar. And it also talks about how these pieces, the neurons all chain together very similar too. And these, and these um, facts are used in, building machine learning bots or machine intelligence, but it's not done. It's, we haven't gotten nowhere close to what it can actually could do for humans. For example, being able to um, like, you know, 
the car, you know, for example, like your the the, the training the bots that are, are used inside your your uh, uh, in your phone to decide on whether the, the battery should be charged or how much power, what, you know, when it should power down or, or even like the keyboards, you know, knowing from which word to give to you or which word to, to type if you're speaking into it using dictation, that's not going to like stop because it's tired. It doesn't have those things. Like it's not irrational. These, so those rational machines is like what makes it great at doing, you know, mundane tasks. But when it comes down to like emotional tasks, you know, being able to, understand you know how people feel and think our, our emotions change based on our environments and our um, bodily how we feel you know and that we haven't brought that in so those things have to be understood too but that doesn't mean what i like about this is that um you know you don't have to have a strong background in math and science to understand these things if you are a man or a woman or whatever on faith that you can use that to come to the same conclusions that science has had has done and i think it's really really important that we do what 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 darwin and einstein has done come together and try to make sure that we can see what we're saying on both sides creationism and evolutionarianism could all be one and the same you know, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to un- omit one and or the other. You know, we today we have so much and of abundance because of having both. But it's important for us to understand that we have to learn how to live in a world where there's or there's many different ideas, and that um, sometimes the wording of how we restrict things or how we 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 we, we say like what we think is is real and what isn't real is based off of claims of our own perceptions you know so i don't want to go that, that could be going to more complex things i don't really want to go too much into that but i wanted to bring that up um the other thing i wanted to talk about was the uh the um let me see where is it mm. Good. Yeah, it's in my good notes. Yeah, so one I wanted to talk about was um, the idea of that the, the brain is a, as a model, and that being able to, um, to being able to make predictions of your of, of, of if you if you're trying to make sure that you can get to work on time, for example, um, if you would have to have a model on on how you would get to work, you know, so if you would take the train. And you commute to work by train. You would have to know the weather to make sure, like, is the weather going to be good enough? So that way, that you know, that you'd be able to make sure that that there's not going to be no delays. You would need to make sure that what time you get up. Um, you would also need to pay attention to you know um, how much time it takes for you to get to work. You would also have to pay attention to like the path that you would take to work. That's the best path, you know. Um, and um, you also would pay attention to how other people get to work too, so and you would pay attention to all these things, and then and then um, you'd also pay attention to how well you've gotten to work so far. So if you never went to that work for the first time, you might spend you might put extra time ahead, so that way you can get to work on time. And these things are all done in the brain. You know, we take them for granted sometimes because we have so much ways of making sure we can always ask someone, we can follow some people. Usually we don't move so often, you know, 
but that's how the things are. One thing that I like about these about this is, is that these models um, are you are implemented into machines, and they can start doing things. They can predict, you know, the world where, for example, you know, based they can they, you can put uh, our we can have a, an inventory management system that basically has access of all of the items in our world, like how much how much um, you know how much wheat we have how much rice how much um water is is available you know you know drinking water um we can look at the weather and we can look at the the population of people how many how many people are working how many are not working and then they can start to do things like make predictions on when there'll be problems you know uh, will arise you know and like that and like and being able to make those predictions you could start doing things like hey it looks like we should start you know putting more um, energy and learning how to, you know, create, you know, to, you know, create our own food, or maybe we should stop um, making, you know, too many cars because it looks like the population is actually going to be dropping. And having those predictions, those future predictions, are much more um, beneficial for our survival as a as a as a society, as as a as all life on Earth, because we would not be um, just doing things, for example. So like this pandemic was necessary to kind of slow things down, right? Because we were kind of constantly just going, 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 going. And we were kind of going off the off the off the off the edge. And it may have looked like it's a tragedy, but it did help us to kind of pay attention to what was more important, which is ourselves. You know, more people have now can get more sleep. They can have time eat things to eat. They can do things that they probably would always want to do, like, you know, pick up a new type of, you know, work or job and then find more meaning in life that they weren't able to do before. And then there are other people or other ways to actually get the things we actually would need. And the, the term is like need. So this book is really great because it kind of helps us to understand like how the mind works and where we can go if we use our minds the way they were intended to use. So I won't go into any more with that. I'll leave that much right there. But thanks a lot. I really appreciate you listening if you've gotten this far. Uh, I will um, continue listening to the book. And, um, I'll, or, and, and I'll probably read some of the pieces of the book too. And uh, when I get back, um, I'll, uh, I'll share some more. So until, until, until then, thank you and uh, matane. Welcome back. This is the Decision Architecture Podcast. A podcast about how decisions define us and how they don't. <laughs> but first, what is decision theory according to academia? Decision theory combines probability theory with utility theory and provides a formal and complete framework for those decisions made under uncertainty. That is, in cases where probability descriptions appropriately capture the decision maker's environment. For large companies, an intelligent agent does not have to pay attention to the actions of other agents as individuals. But for smaller companies, institutions, or even families, the situation becomes more like a game. The actions of one individual will significantly affect the utility of the other. This could lead to positive or negative outcomes. Decisions, decisions, decisions. <laughs> Our decisions that we must make greatly affect the outcome of others around us. So, to summarize, when utilities combine with probabilities in the general theory of rational decisions, this is called decision theory.
What you do is you go through the motions of thinking out what you will do about this. And then when the time comes to act, you make a snap judgment.